The following is a sermon that was preached at Good News Lutheran Church in Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. It was preached on Sunday, November 17, 2019, on the basis of 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 5 through 10. For more information or to view our entire sermon library, visit goodnewslc.org. Thank you for listening. I have some good news. Great news, really. And it's about you and about your future. It's really what this whole series has been about, isn't it? It's a, a series about hope, about the powerful conviction that things are going to get better. And they really are. And not just a little bit. Things are going to get better. One day, everything that is wrong with our world will be undone. And one day, everything will be exactly as Jesus intended it to be. And yes, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, that includes a brand new you, a you where all of your sins and all of your weaknesses are stripped away and gone forever. Yes, as we saw last week, that includes a brand new home, a real physical place that God is going to create for you that will be perfect and that will last forever. But wait, there's more. There's more. I've got good news. This better, brighter future that is in store for you. It also includes, are you ready for this? Judgment. It's maybe not so easy for us to see how judgment is going to make our future better, especially when you consider what we often think of when we think of God's judgment. Last week we saw how there are a lot of misconceptions about heaven floating around in our world. There are at least as many misconceptions about hell out there. And when we think about God's wrath, God's anger against sin and against sinners being poured out, it's a little bit difficult for us to see how that's going to make our future better. It's enough to make even Christians a little bit squeamish. And of course, unbelievers view it as completely monstrous. One more reason not to believe in God. And yet what I just told you is Exactly what the Apostle Paul is going to tell us in these verses that are in front of us today. Paul was writing to a group of Christians who had every reason to despair about their future. Christians who needed some comfort and encouragement desperately. Christians who needed a good shot in the arm of a healthy dose of this thing that we call hope. Christians who needed to be convinced that things were going to get better. And with these words, Paul does exactly that. And he does so by saying to them exactly what he would also say to us, that your better, brighter future also includes judgment. Like I said, both Christian and non-Christian alike might be a little bit uneasy about this idea that Jesus is going to come back on the last day and judge the living and the dead. And yet the first thing that we need to get out of these verses is that the people who are in the best position to judge whether or not that is actually good news are not the people who are sitting in this room right now. Why is that? Well, I won't speak for anyone else. I'll only speak for myself. But this week I was sitting around thinking about the dozens, maybe hundreds of people whose paths cross mine each and every day. Of course, for a great deal, a great many number of those people, it's simply as our cars pass by each other on the road, for 
quite a few people. It's the very short interactions that we have in the grocery store or at pickup time at school. For a smaller number, it actually consists of lengthier conversations. And then, of course, for a very small few, it's actually the people that eat and sleep and live in the same house that I do. And so I started thinking how many of those people are actively, currently, deliberately trying to do me harm. How many of those people are publicly mocking and insulting me? How many of them are trying to break into my home and take my possessions? How many of them are trying to do physical harm to either me or to the people I love? I did the math. I ran the calculations very carefully. Do you know the number I came up with? Exactly zero. And so the thought of God's judgment, his anger and his wrath being poured out on any of those people, of course, that makes us a little bit uneasy. You realize, of course, not everyone has it that way. Think for a minute, for example, about the parents of any of the children who were shot at this week's high school shooting out in California, a shooting where, where once again the shooter will never have to answer, at least, at least to earthly justice, because the last bullet was aimed for him. Or think, for example, about the hundreds of thousands of children in our country each and every year who are the victims of abuse and neglect, many of whose abusers are never reported. Think about the five million people each year in our world who are abducted for human sex trafficking, many of their captors never to be caught. Picture the Thessalonian Christians who from the very first day that they believed were persecuted for their faith, who had people in their own communities, in their own city, in their own neighborhoods, who were mocking and insulting them, who were taking their possessions away, who were causing them actual physical harm. Picture any of them and picture trying to sell them, trying to pitch them this wonderful picture of a world without any judgment. This wonderful world that John Lennon famously imagined. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us and above us only sky. Imagine essentially saying to those people, you know, I know what you're going through is tough. And I feel for you, really I do. But you know, sometimes life just isn't fair. And there's nothing you can do except deal with it. Those people who have done all of those horrible, nasty things to you, they'll probably get away with it. They're never going to get caught. And so there's nothing you can do except just deal with it. Talk about a message that is going to suck all the hope out of life at a moment's notice. Talk about a message that is going to fill someone with utter despair, convince them that everything is meaningless. Or, on the other hand, to convince them to try and take matters into their own hands, to constantly be trying to seek revenge and to make those wrongs right, to constantly be filled with rage and anger and bitterness toward others. It is easy for us to maybe sit here today and question God's judgment a little bit, to question God's judgment from the comfort of our leather recliners as we watch our big screen TVs in the comfort of our upper middle class suburban homes. But you, of course, realize not everyone has that luxury. In fact, I think all we would need to do is substitute that word judgment for another word 
That means exactly the same thing. And suddenly everyone would be happy with this prospect of a future judgment. The word, of course, is justice. Our world is a world of justice. And our future is a future full of justice because our God is a God of justice. That's all Paul is promising the Thessalonians when he says, God will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled. Among the many things that Jesus will undo, he will surely undo every injustice. He will right every wrong. And I think, I think most people would agree that's pretty good news. It's even better news that he's the one who's going to be doing it. In these verses, Paul not only tells us that God is responsible for that justice, but Paul assures us God is just. God's judgments are always right. That isn't true, of course, of the people sitting in this room, correct? Let me give you just a few examples. I remember when I was younger, it seemed to me at least, that there was kind of this common and very widespread, widely accepted judgment about people who were poor, people who did not have jobs, people who lived on the streets, people who had to beg just to get by. How did those people get that way? Well, they were lazy, of course, and they had made lots of bad decisions in their life, and they didn't want to work for an honest living. Was that true for some of those people? Probably. Is that true for all of them? Of course not. It's kind of interesting how it maybe seems in our day like the tables have turned a little bit. Like there, there seems to be this commonly accepted widespread judgment about rich people, about billionaires who have lots of different homes and yachts and fly around on private jets. How did they get that way? Well, of course, everything was just handed to them, right? They never had to work for it. Or they just lied and, and cheated and stole to get everything that they had and, of course, exploited a lot of hardworking Americans along the way. Is that true for some of them? Probably. Is that true for all of them? Of course not. We get our judgments wrong all the time. Parents, how many of you have ever yelled at one of your kids only to find out later that the information you were working with was incorrect? Yet, just this week. Students, children, how many of you have ever done something mean to someone, taken revenge against someone based on what you heard they had done to you only to find out later that that was just a rumor and a false one at that. We get our judgments wrong all the time. And so what, now we're going to sit here and we're going to judge God? We're going to tell him that carrying out his judgment is somehow wrong of him? Of course, in the process, actually putting ourselves in judgment of him? Not only is that tragically ironic, but it is utter, utter nonsense. We are the last people in the world who are capable, who are in a position to judge God, and we have given plenty of evidence to prove it. But all of that kind of creates a problem, doesn't it? I mean, on the one hand, it's very easy for us to sit here and say, yeah, I think it'll be a pretty good thing that God comes back in judgment, that he brings justice to this world, that he rights every wrong and undoes every injustice But of course we know that Jesus isn't going to just do that for other people. If God is just, then God is just. And if God is going to judge, then God is going to judge. And if you're looking for any reason why people like us would sometimes balk at that, it's because we know how that judgment is supposed to turn out. We know that we are guilty. 
Of course, guilty people want leniency. Of course, guilty people want a God who is just an absolute pushover and will let us get away with any and every sin that we want. Thankfully, Paul shows us that we have a God who is even better than the God we might wish that we would have. Paul tells us on what basis God is going to carry out his judgment. On the last day, it is Jesus himself who is going to return, as we confess in the Apostles' Creed, to judge the living and the dead. And when he does, here's how he will carry that judgment out. He will punish, Paul says, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Jesus is going to judge people on the basis of his gospel. In other words, the basis of Jesus' judgment will not be, well, let's just give everyone what they deserve. Because we know how that would turn out, right? We know what we would deserve from Jesus. In fact, for every person that we might be able to think of, that we would just be waiting for Jesus, please come back and bring justice to that person. Do you think that maybe, just maybe, there is someone out there somewhere who is thinking the very same thing about us right now? Someone that we have hurt? Someone that we have caused pain to? Someone that we have brought, brought misery and difficulty into their life? So thankfully, Jesus is not going to judge people on the basis of what they deserve. The basis of Jesus' judgment will also not be, well, let's just let everyone get away with everything then, because then God would not be just and we'd be right back in that world where justice is absent, that world that is utterly hopeless. Instead, Paul says, Jesus is going to judge on the basis of his gospel. He's going to judge people on the basis of the good news about the work that he did for us. How in the world can a holy and just God, on the one hand, not let sinners get away with any sin, and yet, on the other hand, pardon those same sinners for every sin that they've committed? There is only one way. It's the gospel. It's the good news of what our Savior Jesus did for us, that he came to this world as the one person in the history of the world who was truly innocent who then took on himself the guilt and paid the sentence that all of us deserved. That's how God carries out his justice. The punishment for every sin is placed on Jesus, and you and I get a full pardon. You and I get a free pass to eternal life. That's the gospel. That's the basis on which Jesus will judge, whether people cling to that gospel in faith or whether they want nothing to do with it. That also then explains the sentence that Jesus will hand out on Judgment Day. Out of all the misconceptions that are out there in the world about hell, probably the biggest one, the one that kind of includes all the rest, is this idea that God created hell as this very special torture chamber where he threw in all of his best ideas for how he could possibly make life as miserable as possible for as many people as he possibly could and then just sit back and watch people suffer. (laughs) Yes, Paul says that people who are judged by Jesus, who are found guilty, will receive eternal destruction. But notice how that destruction comes. It comes because on the last day they will be separated. They will be apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. More often than not, in fact, in just about every case, when the Bible talks about hell, it doesn't talk about what is there. It talks about what is not. And what is not there is the loving and providing presence and care 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. And absent of that, there is nothing for us but total destruction. In fact, we might think of it this way. I know for some of you, your freezers are just about empty. There's just that last little bit of venison meat from last year's deer hunt, and you are really looking forward to restocking that freezer once again with a big trophy buck next Saturday morning. But what would happen if in that freezer where you keep your venison or or whatever other meat you put in there, someone came along and unplugged it? That meat would be destroyed, would it not? In fact, there would be no other option for that meat except destruction. But not because of anything that was really done to it, rather because of something that was removed from it. Because by itself, that meat does not have the ability to sustain itself. It needs, it entirely depends on something else. In the very same way, whether people realize it or not, every last thing that we need, we are dependent on. We are dependent on Jesus for those things. And separation from Jesus is synonymous with destruction. On the flip side, notice the reward for those who die believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says that when Jesus comes back, their reward is that they get to marvel at Jesus. The very same Jesus that they so love, that they are so in awe of, they get to love and be in awe of for all eternity. You maybe heard the story a couple weeks back about this, this special covert military operation that ended up bringing down the, the leader of the terrorist group ISIS. Kind of reminded me of one that had happened a few years back when Osama bin Laden was brought down. I don't know about you, but I think it'd be really cool to meet one of the people who were on that special operation. Can you imagine if they showed up at a, a store for a book signing or something like that? Can you imagine if you got a chance to sit down and talk with them? And they could tell you everything that they knew, all of the training that they had to go through, all the intelligence that they had, all of the the things that they went through on the night of that special operation that that brought about that great victory. Would you not just sit back and, and marvel at everything that went into that? In fact, it'd probably be quite a while before that marveling wore off. How much more for the Savior who loved us so much and carried out a rescue operation far greater who came to this world and took on the punishment that we deserve so that we could have full pardon. If there's anything that causes us to marvel, it's that. And that's what we will get for all eternity. You put all of this together, and you end up with what you've heard me say before, that in judgment, on judgment day, everyone gets exactly what they want. People who have spent their entire life wanting to be far away from Jesus will get just that. With a whole lot of horror, of course. But they will be far away from Jesus for all eternity. And people who have spent their lives wanting to be close to Jesus and trying to be close to Jesus will get just that. They will be close to Jesus for all eternity. This is how Jesus carries out his justice. He judges on the basis of his gospel, and on Judgment Day, everyone gets exactly what they want. Now, understanding that helps us know what we are supposed to do with this biblical doctrine of hell. When it comes to the Bible's teaching on hell, like a lot of things, it's important not only to know what the Bible says, but why the Bible says it. For example, understanding this is the key to understanding that no one 
will be talked into heaven by being scared out of hell. This is why, for example, those billboards that you sometimes see with the big flames of fire and the the phone numbers that you're supposed to call, this is why the person standing on the corner of the street with the big megaphone warning people about Jesus' judgment, this is why those maybe aren't the most effective ways to convince someone to believe in Jesus. Why? Well, how do you scare someone by threatening to give them the very thing that they want? If hell is separation from Jesus, how do you convince someone who wants to be separated from Jesus by threatening them that if they continue, they're going to be separated from Jesus? We might put it this way. I have a confession to make this morning. It's okay if I tell you. I just want to make sure we're in a really safe space right now so I can tell you this secret. I'm not a cat person. I'm just not a big fan of cats. If you're a cat person, totally fine. If you have cats at your house, I'll even come over gladly and I'll even smile if they crawl up on my lap. Totally fine, but I'm just not a cat person. In fact, my son seems to be allergic to cats, and I'll admit I'm a little bit jealous. (laughs) So what if, what if, I know some of you are cat people. What if you said, Pastor Bauer, how dare you? How dare you not like cats? That is just totally and completely awful. Pastor Bauer, if you are not careful, if you don't start liking cats, then you are never going to have a cat for the rest of your life. How in the world is that a threat? How in the world does that scare me by offering me the very thing that I probably want? People are not going to be brought into heaven by being scared out of hell. What those people need to be convinced of is why Jesus is someone that they want to marvel at for all eternity. What they need to hear, of course, is the gospel. They need to hear of the Savior who came to be condemned for them so that they could go free. So that's not why God tells us about hell in the Bible. Why does he? Well, sometimes it's to take people who already know the truth, already know about God, already know the truth about the gospel, and maybe even believe it, but aren't taking it very seriously in their lives, are taking it for granted. And so the Bible's teaching about hell is used to to wake them up, to get their attention, to remind them that this is no joke, that this is a serious, serious thing going on in our lives, that when it comes to us, that when it comes to our children, when it comes to their children, The devil is playing for keeps. And then the Bible's doctrine about hell is also used to do exactly what Paul does in these verses. To take people who are suffering, suffering injustice, to take people who are being persecuted and to offer them hope. I mentioned before that, at least currently, I couldn't come up with a single person who is actively trying to do me harm in my life, certainly not because I'm a Christian. Maybe that's the same for you. Maybe it's different. I don't know. But in either case, I wouldn't be surprised if that continues to change. If here in our country it gets more and more difficult to live as a Christian. If that's the case, if that does in fact happen, what are we going to do about that? How are we going to handle that? How are we going to deal with that? Are we just going to lose all hope? Are we going to despair? Are we going to think that nothing matters anymore? Or are we going to be tempted to take matters into our own hands? We're going to be filled with thoughts of revenge and rage and bitterness and spite and want to lash out against the people who are mistreating us. Instead, instead we can use the words that God gives us here to do the very thing that Paul wants them to do. 
to use them to do the very thing that really this entire series is encouraging us to do, to wait, to hold on to the hope of the judgment and the justice that is far better than any that we could possibly execute here during our lives on earth, to wait for Jesus to keep his promise, to take every last thing that is wrong with this world and undo it forever, to right every last wrong. Friends, you and I have, have given more than enough evidence to, as, as proof that we are the last people in the world who should be carrying out that judgment. And Jesus has given us all the evidence in the world that he's exactly the right person who should be. And so, yes, there is a better, brighter future that is in store for each and every one of us. And yes, that better, brighter future also includes Jesus' judgment. Amen. Amen.